everybody knows who you are in a five mile radius. Own the five mile radius, whether that's online, whether that's in person, whether that's in a park, like own it and don't let anyone else come in and take it from you. So we've always been bullish that the bricks and mortar are going to thrive again. And it's happened. Hi there, welcome to the Business Side of Fitness podcast. This is your host, Vanessa Severiano. Each week on the show, I leverage my two decades of experience in the fitness and wellness industry to have meaningful conversations with the movers and shakers behind some of the most well-known and innovative brands in our industry. This show is brought to you by Vanessa Severiano, LLC. To find out more about working with me, click the link in the show notes. And now the time has come to start the show. Everyone's got a story and it's time to hear from this week's guest. Let's welcome to the show, Pete Moore. He's the founder, managing partner, and chief dream architect at Integrity Square, the leading boutique financial advisory firm and an early stage investor in the halo sector. Welcome to the show, Pete. Great to finally be on, Vanessa. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to have you here because we have a lot of friends in common. The industry is so incestuous. And so your name has come up to me so many times. So I'm really excited. Hopefully in positive light. (laughs) All good. But now I get to pick your brain and, and, and learn from you. So I'm very excited to get this conversation going. Let's just kick things off with you starting a little bit, sharing a little bit about your background, how you got involved in fitness and wellness, and we'll just get started that way. Yeah. So I always take the story back to to elementary school when I used to play soccer. And I realized that if you're the goalie, you don't have to run as much and you get to use your hands. So I decided to, to play that position. At the time, I used to be able to access my father's change been. So when the ice cream man came, I used to get a lot of sweets and I would put them under my bed and I would eat a lot of food late at night. So I got a little chubby as a kid and it was a great position to play, you know, as a chubby kid in Long Island. And I ended up turning into actually a very good goalkeeper. And what I realized as the goalie is that my role is to make sure we don't lose. It's not for me to win. Those are for other position players. So I always had this mantra about how do I support other people? And I'm not looking to be in front of the lights. I'm looking to make sure that whoever's in the right position makes the right plays. And I'm going to support the team in the back, in the defense. So as I kind of grew up in banking, I realized that as an advisor, you're helping entrepreneurs achieve their goals. And I got really lucky when I went down to a firm called Brockway Moran and Partners in August of 1999 as a senior associate. My first day at work, they had a Monday morning meeting and they talked about the deals that they had under letter of intent. And it was eight people in the firm, a big conference room table in Boca Raton. And the first deal that they said they had under letter of intent was to buy Gold's Gym International with the largest franchisee out of Washington, D.C. I quickly scanned the room. I realized I was definitely the only person that owned a tank top. And I was definitely the only person that actually had a Gold's Gym membership. 
So I raised my hand and said, hey, I used to play goalie. I was the athlete of the year back in 1993 at Emory University. And I put in parentheses, intramural athlete of the year. And uh, I got drafted onto that deal team and basically have not left the health and fitness industry uh, since August 1st of 1999. I started a software company back in April 1st of 2000, three weeks before the internet crashed. But I lived in Arizona as an entrepreneur. I know what it's like to cover payroll every two weeks out of your personal checking account. We had the equivalent of Salesforce.com meets eDiets, private label for about 1,500 health clubs. And I got to know a lot of the clusters of health club operators through Gold's Gym, World Gym, Powerhouse. And at the time, which you'll harken back to, a lot of clubs didn't have computers inside. And I would say, can you please put in a DSL line for 35 a month and buy a Dell computer or a gateway? And they said, you know what? Let's save money and let's just do it out of my house on my AOL computer. So we were uploading megs, JPEGs of megs of photos of their club through a 288 modem. And it was in their living room and it took four hours or six hours. So I got to know a lot of these entrepreneurs when they had a few clubs and they would ask me what EBITDA is. How do I value my company? Do you mind doing this Excel sheet for me while we're waiting for these personal training group exercise pictures to upload? So I was kind of a banker running around in internet clothing for three years and then went back to banking, put together the crunch deal, Massage Envy, LA Fitness transactions with Urban Active and several Gold's Gym rebrandings. And over the last 11 years, Dave Ganelin, myself, Dave Zalkowitz, Richard Pyle, set up a boutique firm called Integrity Square. So if you're in the square, you're protected by the square. And we trademarked the term Halo that we want everyone to use for health, active lifestyle, outdoors. Wellness is the opposite of illness. So if you're not sick, you're just okay. That's so why we want to create the Halo effect and the Halo sector and bring in as much capital as we can to entrepreneurs that are worthy of getting it. So that's my short story. And I'm here to serve the industry, bring in as much capital as I can, educate people, create more jobs, and change lifestyles. And who are the right brands to work with Integrity Square? And when is the right time to do so? Yeah, that's a great question. We typically work on transactions that are over $3 million of EBITDA. So when entrepreneurs have proven what their prototype is on the bricks and mortar side and are now looking to replicate and scale their business with institutional capital. We also work with a lot of private equity funds that are looking to invest in the space as their buy side advisor. What we've tried to do with earlier stage companies is use our Halo Talks network to showcase opportunities for venture capital firms, angel investors. And then we've also created Halo Academy, which is basically a two-week boot camp business school, five nights, two hours, with understanding the business models of Planet Fitness, CrossFit, SoulCycle, Peloton, and Cycle for Survival. So we're a middle market entrepreneur's first institutional capital raise. We're trying to protect them and get them the best deal. We help people buy and sell clubs. And we want to be helpful to entrepreneurs that are earlier stage by giving them a mouthpiece in the industry and you know, effectively an infomercial through the Halo Talks Network. 
And how has the investment community's position changed towards brick and mortar or just fitness and wellness in general pre versus post COVID? Well, I'll take you back further than that. You know, 20 years ago, you know, Valley's Fitness was the only publicly traded health club company. And I used to try and sell or bring an investment into the health club industry. And the most of the book is why I am not like Valley's Fitness. So I had to convince people that these were good business models and that they weren't going to go to lose money in the, uh, in the health club industry. Over the last 15 years, you've got a lot of professionalism that's happened in the industry with Lifetime Fitness, Crunch now being owned by uh, TPG. You've got Exponential out there as a public company, F45. So the investment community now understands what the health club engine can be or what the studios and franchise stores and franchisees can do on unit economics. When you look at what happened during COVID, it was an opportunity for investors to look at distressed assets and maybe make a play in those businesses that were valued and could get out of certain leases like Gold's Gym International before COVID was probably worth $250 million. A group called RSG out of Germany bought the company for $100 million. Yoga Works, which was a public company at one point worth several hundred million dollars, was acquired for $9 million and shut all their studios and went straight to digital. So what happened during COVID was basically a cleansing of a lot of bad locations and bad leases and, and poor operators. Those locations are now being backfilled by a lot of the franchisees that have territories to grow in. And you're seeing a renewed interest in private equity groups looking to grow out the area development agreements. During COVID, if you're going to do a growth equity deal, there was a disconnect between what the bid and what the ask was. So if you're an entrepreneur, you know, you're not going to take a huge discount for waiting, you know, because you're not getting pre-COVID valuations and you just wanted to get through the storm. So things are now officially back, but there's a lot of window shopping that went on during COVID by private equity firms to basically wait until the gates opened again, and then they would get back into the industry. So there's a robust interest in strong unit economic area developers, as well as independent health club brands that are looking to grow. Do you feel like investors are still willing to look at brick and mortar facilities? Because I feel like there's all this hype around digital fitness and, and wearables and all of that. And I just wonder, you know, what type of feedback you're getting from investors, you know, when they're looking to spend their allocate their funds, are they are you having to convince them or talk to talk them into the value of of investing in a brick and mortar location or brand? So right when COVID hit, David Gannelin and I started to make a list of every freelance reporter that was getting paid by word that they were going to change their lifestyle. They're never going into a soul cycle or Barry's boot camp. They're just going to work out in their apartment. And we and we called bullshit on that and said, I'll bet you'll be back because this experience is not something that you do in your apartment. You're, the floors in your apartment are not designed for you to do uh, high intensity workouts on the experience that you get inside of a club with the music, with the energy, with the peer pressure, if you will, to perform does not constitute that this is a, a dinosaur industry or, you know, the health club industry is the next blockbuster. 
you know, we basically said, wait and see. We're going to be right. You're going to be wrong. We put a bet out on the internet for $2,022, which nobody took the other side of. And what happened was exactly what we thought was going to happen. People want community. People want energy. You know, if your garage is not the best place to meet new people, right? And it's not the best thing to invite people over to your garage for your workout, right? So what's happened is a lot of the bricks and mortar locations have really fine-tuned their business model. They've rationalized what their staffing and personnel looks like. So they've lowered their costs. In some instances, they've lowered the, their lease rates because they've negotiated with their landlords. And they basically have taken the digital and said, hey, I can provide this through whether it's a televideo, whether it's Forte, whether it's Wexer Media. There's no reason why 100,000 apps can now replace the relationship I have with my health club, with my trainer, with the group exercise instructor. And what Dave and I have been preaching to health club operators is you operate in a five-mile radius, right? Everybody knows who you are in a five-mile radius. Own the five-mile radius, whether that's online, whether that's in person, whether that's in a park, like own it and don't let anyone else come in and take it from you. So we've always been bullish that the bricks and mortar are going to thrive again. And it's happened. I mean, I'm in complete agreement with you, but our investors. Yeah, look, I mean, there's been deals that have gotten done over the last six months with Planet Fitness area developers at EBITDA multiples in the high digits. Uh, or double digits, so nine to 11 times EBITDA. There's publicly traded companies like Exponential Fitness and F45 that institutional public investors have allowed to go public. Lifetime Fitness is now public again. And yeah, there's robust private equity interest in the industry. But there's a couple of things that are important. There's interest, but there also has to be the financials that back it. So if you're an Orange Theory franchisee, and you're back to pre-COVID numbers or pretty close to pre-COVID numbers, and your membership and your unit economics are strong, and you can replicate it and have white space to grow, you're going to get capital. If you are a boutique operator and you're doing $30,000 or less of revenue per month per location, newsflash, that's not a good business. I'm not interested as an investor because you can't make enough money in that type of operation if you're paying full rent. So what you're going to see over time is getting to $60,000 a month for a franchise business or a studio or boutique is the requirement, in my mind, in order to get and attract real capital. Investors who are members are always just going to believe in the entrepreneur. And they're going to say, okay, I'll invest in this because I'm helping you fulfill your dream, or I want to come in here every day and I'm going to say I'm an investor and I get free shit, or you know I want to you know get ahead of the line. But real businesses in the coming uh, years are going to be franchise businesses that have strong sales and marketing, have systems in place, and are part of a larger entity because I think you have an advantage of that, and uh, they're going to have unit economics that continue to be replicated. One point to people that are looking at franchised businesses and they say, oh, I got to pay 6% of revenue to Orange Theory uh, or 8%. Uh, I got to pay 5 or 6% to Crunch. They say that's a lot of money. 
Think about it this way. If you have a $2 million revenue crunch location and you're paying 6% to crunch, you're basically renting $10 million of corporate overhead for 6% of 2 million. So I pay 120 grand and you used to work at crunch, right? Right. So I'm renting, I have access to $10 million of personnel and people that wake up every day that are trying to help optimize the crunch brand in their business. So don't think about it as a royalty is like a tax. Think about a royalty is a sourced corporate overhead team that you can't afford. So you got to kind of flip that and think about the benefits of those types of uh, opportunities. 86% of U.S. adults taking virtual exercise classes plan to continue doing so as gyms reopen. That's a huge opportunity for anyone looking to launch or expand their virtual fitness offering. Our friends at SyncFloor offer a catalog of over 16,000 songs by the best independent commercial artists. It's great music that can be affordably licensed for both live and video on demand fitness classes. Listeners of the Business Side of Fitness podcast get their first 30-minute class covered for free. Just go to fitness.syncfloor.com. Link in show notes. So what's the perfect marriage between an investor and an organization? Because I feel like sometimes investors come in and there's Yes, there are some advantages where now you're getting access to investor resources and it opens up the floodgates to allow for more funding and spending and hiring and marketing. But I feel like sometimes they kind of want to take away the special sauce of the brand or get involved in operating the business, which can be tricky if you're not an operator. So what is what does that perfect symbiotic relationship look like? Yeah, so. Those are some of the components, you know, what you, what you give up, you know, your autonomy. If you're part of a, a franchise business, and the reason why private equity kind of flocks to those types of opportunities is because there's a operating playbook in place. And they don't have to worry about an entrepreneur saying, hey, let's take this uh, brand and let's add you know, studios inside and charge for them. Let's pull out all the personal training and do things like on a whim or reactively. You know, it's a very thoughtful process because franchisors are compensated based on the revenue that's generated. They're not based on EBITDA, it's based on revenue. And it's also based on growth. So the franchisor is like the protector of the prototype. And they want to make sure that everyone runs that prototype. When you look at private equity, the reason why most private equity comes in and, and encourages and convinces a entrepreneur to partner with them and buy some of their equity, whether minority or majority stake, is if you want to build 10 locations and you're an entrepreneur out of, where do you live, Iowa, Jersey, or where are you from? I'm from New York, but I'm in Miami. Miami. Okay. So let's say you want to start up and, and go do a, a 10 club health club chain right now under, you know, Vanessa's fitness. Okay. The landlord's going to say, okay, Vanessa, you're great. I love your energy. You've been in the industry. Oh, you worked at crunch. That's awesome. Here's a lease and, and sign a personal guarantee on a 10 year lease, right? For 500 grand a year. 
Okay, so now you got $500,000 of liability, right? You go to the local bank, you know, the TD Bank in Miami, you say, hey, I'm awesome. I've been in this industry 20 years, like I'm going to crush it. They're like, okay, I'll give you a loan. Inside a personal guarantee on this also on a $3 million loan. So you just started this awesome location in Miami. And then you wake up one night at three o'clock in the morning, like, shit, I got a $3.5 million liability. And it's personal, right? It's not a business. It's personal. So a private equity firm comes in, you've got 10 clubs, you've got potentially, you know, $35 million worth of debt that has your name on it. You got 10 leases that are 10 year leases that has your name on it. And you're like, I want to continue to grow, but I can't sleep at night. So private equity comes in and says, Hey, Vanessa, I love your business. Unit economics look great. Let me buy 60% of your business. I'll give you that money. I'm going to get you off all the personal guarantees that you have. I'm going to stand in front of them. And I'm going to give you another $35 million. We're going to go to 20 clubs. I'm going to pay you a salary. You're going to report to me because I own the company now. You have an employment agreement. If things don't go well, it's my, it's my company. But yeah, I think you're great right now. And you've done a great job. So it turns into a deal where all the next 10 clubs are with somebody else's money does not have Vanessa's name on the debt, does not have Vanessa's name. And now you can keep growing and you can sleep at night and you got money in your bank account. That's why private equity is in there. And they find opportunities where they can grow a territory or they can grow an independent operator from 10 to 20 to 50 clubs and then sell it to the next private equity firm. So that's how it works. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes complete sense. I mean, we've personally in my family been through this personal guarantee situation and it's not so fun <laughs> when your name is on everything and your house is now mortgaged and all of that. Yeah, so COVID yeah. Hits. Oh, I didn't think of COVID. Sorry. That it's guarantees real. Yeah, it got it got very real for us. So when you've been involved in so many raises and sales, what are the most valuable assets for a business that's looking to raise funds or or sell like what should they be prioritizing is it a lease is it the staff like what aside from cash flow are the list of priorities that they should be addressing if you start a business it takes you time to understand what the special sauce is of your business and if that business can be replicated so Peter Brockway, who I used to work for down in Florida, used to use this term. He used to say, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. So I got a lot of experience and I've seen a lot of you know, movies, if you will. And I know how the movie ends. And if you try and grow too quickly, then you don't really know what your business is. So with Orange Theory is a great example of when they partnered up with Ellen, who had uh, Ultimate Fitness, four to five studios were losing money. And uh, Dave Long and uh, Terry Blaychick and Jerome, I'm not getting all the story right. So I'm not dramatizing or embellishing, but this is like a narrative of it. They went down there and they said, well, what is this business? Like, what's the special sauce of this business? Should there be technology located in it? Should there be an instructor that has their name on the program? which is now like how SoulCycle works. Like I go to only like three SoulCycle instructors. I don't go to the six o'clock class, right? I'm following instructors. So they made it about the program. They also made it about the membership and eight times a month for a certain amount. 
And they figured out what the pre-sales were. They figured out how the program was going to work. They figured out how the technology was going to play into that. And they figured out the class schedule. And all that kind of became the special sauce. But that took years to figure out how to do that. They could have franchised the business to somebody in Australia or Canada right away or, oh, let's go into Europe. It's like, we don't even know what the business is yet, right? So what I would tell entrepreneurs is instead of trying to grow and you have like five locations and I ask you a very simple question, which one's the prototype? And you say, but the sixth one's going to be the prototype. It's like, why don't you come back to me when you know what the prototype is, right? So people are so interested in growing that they're not fixing what they already have and optimizing that business. So what I would tell entrepreneurs is don't raise capital until you understand your own business and tweak the business to the point where now it's scalable. Now it's interesting. Now we know how to make money. That's what I would, uh, I'd advise people. And the lease is always important, but you got a box that you put in and say, okay, if I do hundred thousand dollars in revenue a month, I can do a $15,000, $20,000 lease. But if I, if I can't, if there's no parking spots to accommodate a thousand members, business doesn't work. So you got to find the special sauce and fix the prototype before you grow. Right. I think people underestimate how difficult it is to scale. I've been a part of projects where like that one first location was like so special and unique. And then you go to duplicate that. And it's just different because of the location, because of the members, because the layout of the facility is different. It's just very hard to create a recipe for success that you can replicate. And I think people need to, you know, come up with that special sauce and that special prototype, like you were saying. That makes yeah, like, like three sense. examples of this. We, we go through this in Halo Academy. But if you take a look at Planet Fitness, okay, that business model was built on frustration and desperation, okay? It was a Gold's Gym in New Hampshire that was going to go bankrupt. And they said, you know what? Let's take out everything that causes us problems or that requires our resources or we just don't understand. Let's get all these personal trainers off the floor because they do deals with members. They take up a lot of space. They're hustling people and they piss us off. Let's get rid of the group exercise instructors because they always ask for a raise and think that this is their club and not mine. Let's get rid of the pro shop because somehow we got 50% margins, but every month it's zero, right? Let's get rid of daycare because I want to be responsible for someone else's kid. And then what they said was, let's paint the place purple so people don't stay here that long because it doesn't look that nice. And let's make sure nobody comes in here and hangs out for two or three hours. So there's no dumbbells above 50 pounds because I don't want weightlifters taking up all the space. I don't want personal trainers taking up the space because I'm running like the Southwest Airlines of the fitness industry. I got to get you in and out. I can't get 10,000 members if I got 20 trainers on the floor. That's 20 members on a fire code, right? That I want the members. I don't want personnel, right? Think about like In-N-Out Burger. Right, they've got like five things on the menu. You have been to In and Out Burger? Yes. Okay, thanks for all listeners here. This is a non-Halo location that I highly recommend, with a cheeseburger and a milkshake, vanilla. Imagine you were in a board meeting at, at In and Out Burger, and someone's like, "I think we should do chicken sandwiches," right? And then the founder's going to be like, "Are you out of your mind? Like, I got to get a new refrigerator. I got to deal with salmonella." I got to deal with new utensils. I got to get different cooking equipment. 
That's not what we do. We don't do chicken. Okay. I just do these five items and I crush it. Right. Southwest Airlines. If, if, should you put a first class in Southwest Airlines? No, that's not what we do. Like we're trying to get you from point A to point B for the lowest price and get this plane in and out of the gate within 19 minutes. So I'm not calling like group A, you know, mosaic. And then I have to like pamper people. It's not what I'm doing, you know? So think about what you want to do and what the business model is and don't deviate from it. Sorry, I get off my soapbox right now. No, you are so passionate. You got me like you dropped some good little nuggets in there, which two things. One, I want to touch on audience development because I think Planet Fitness did a great job of of developing the audience for the fitness industry and reaching a new demographic. What are your thoughts on like the biggest opportunities right now for the fitness industry in terms of audience development? Look, I mean, there's no doubt that everybody needs to work out. I don't know why during COVID we didn't really focus more on obesity and, you know, high blood pressure and people's lifestyle habits. Like those are the people that, that, died, you know, during COVID, right? Healthy people on average didn't die from COVID. People over 80, I mean, God bless. If you make it to 80, that's awesome. Okay. And if you passed away from COVID, you might've passed away anyway from something else, right? I don't, I don't know. But my point is people know that they need to live a healthier lifestyle. They've got to be in a position where they're not intimidated by going into a bricks and mortar club. I think with people being able to access digital content during COVID, got them more comfortable with the fact that, hey, this class isn't that hard. Or, all right, I'm comfortable. I know what to do here. So those people will come back. But the middle market, the middle-aged people are like over 40. A lot of them had money to have their own home gyms. They got Pelotons or they got, you know, workout recovery deal equipment, you know, at their home. And a lot of those people are hesitant to go back to the club full-time because maybe there's significant others like, Hey, you blew $3,000 on this gym in the, in the garage. You know, now you're going to go back to the club. You're like, yeah. Like I want to go back to the club. So it's going to take a little time for that to fully tilt back, but yeah, people are going to go into planet fitness. People are going to go into these other clubs and they're going to find what they like. And hopefully the health club industry doesn't intimidate them like it did before people want to change it with the way they look and the way they feel. And a lot of that's body change. So, you know, don't make it a challenge, make it a journey. Right. And I think like when we celebrate small victories and we take away that intimidation factor, like there's so many people that have said to me like, Oh wait, I have to lose weight before I can start working out here. And it's like, wow, that's actually like the complete opposite message we want to be giving, but we have to look at it from the consumer's perspective and say like, Hey, from the outside, are we too, like, you can't sit with us. You can't sweat with us. We're too cool for you and giving off those vibes. And we have to change our messaging to be more welcoming and inclusive. So Pete, what are some of the, there's one one point on that. There's, there's differentiation where, look, Planet Fitness wants everybody to come in and that's great. Okay. Barry's boot camp, like my mom's not coming to Barry's boot camp and, and they don't want my mom and my mom doesn't want them. Right. So there's going to be cults that are out there. Like I go to Soul Cycle and I go there as often as I can. Okay. And I'm willing to pay 35 bucks for that experience because I'm substituting that for, 
you know, I say this in my Halo Academy for like a Bronzino dinner, you know, so I'm willing to pay that price, but I want to be part of that cult. And I want to know who those people are in the cult that I don't want to, you know, necessarily be feel like I'm in a planet fitness. So to your point, I think people are going to find different options, but there are certain brands that cater to a certain lifestyle, behavior, or psyche, and those brands have the right to exist. Right. Like identify your ideal client and then target your messaging instead of just creating like more and more replicas of what's already out there. Try to get clear on like who you're trying to serve and then create the messaging that resonates with those people. So bringing up Soul Cycle and Barry's just got me thinking, Pete, what are your thoughts on boutique fitness and package based businesses versus reoccurring membership model? I mean, if I had a re- if I had a monthly membership at Soul Cycle, I'm not. Let's just put all my 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 personal unit economics on the table. Okay, I'd probably go to Soul Cycle if I had an unlimited. Probably go like 25 times a month. Okay, so 25 times a month times 30 dollars. So you'd have to charge me to break even on me, or to flip me from a pack to a membership. You got to charge me like 6.95 a month. Right, because I'm going to overuse the membership, and then if that class I can't get into, and I'm on a membership, I'm pissed that I can't get into that class. I'm I'm paying six ninety five a month. How do I not get bike ten in Manhattan Beach basically whenever I want? Right, it's like well, because it's not available to you. We sold a thousand memberships, so by selling the class pack, you can't piss people off because it's available. I get a seat it seat in it just like a concert, and I'm not angry. Right. And people overuse memberships if they're a super user. Having said that, yeah, would it be great if SoulCycle had like $350 a month memberships and they had so much capacity that everybody gets what they want? Yeah, but that's, you can't really do that with, with this. It's like a live event business, you know, so you can't really run that, that model. And in Orange Theory, you say unlimited is like eight times a month, right? So eight times a month, you could put through 800 to 1,000 members but it's not unlimited. So you have to limit the memberships on a monthly basis on you. And that would work on a membership basis. I just think it's so hard to get to that point where you understand what the revenue is going to be. Like I've seen a lot of studios try to duplicate that business model of having package a package run business, but the brand or isn't strong enough, or the sale, the front desk team isn't strong enough to renew. And I've seen a lot of them fail, which is why I think it's really interesting that like Exponential, when they went into a lot of these studio concepts, created this membership model. I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, look, if you got a yoga class and you, you know, you don't have to pick a spot and I'm not sure exactly how their, their model works, but I would advise people, if you're going to do an unlimited you know, have an asterisk there. And that means like eight or 10 times or 12 times or whatever per month. Or if you've got big rooms and you got 80 people that you can fit in a class, you know, God bless you, sell as many as you want. What are some of the best shifts or, you know, adaptations of business models that you've seen happen over the last couple of years, like brands that are coming out of, you know, the last couple of years stronger or better? Hmm. Carolyn, you got any, uh, Thoughts on that one? It's a tough one, especially yeah, now. Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. Look, I think every brand has kind of looked at their their balance sheet, balance sheet, and you know thought about what investments they're making. 
you know, do I need to bring back certain personnel or, you know, we always preach that I'd rather have less people that, that are better. They get paid more, you know, so I would lower my labor, but I would get better people and I could attract more talent. That's a really good question. You know, I think, you know, I think exponential with this X pass, which is basically like their in-house class pass could be really interesting because you're going to be able to access locations and different types of modalities, you know, so you have the, the, the breadth of, of choice, but you're still under their monthly fee and then they can jump around. So I think that's going to be really interesting. I think probably gym pass and class pass will figure out how to get their business models where they're really helping the employers, the employees and the studios. And there's less of a what what's what's my inventory cost on a on a student visit and it's now class pass is based on credits so i, th- I think that those are going to be two aggregators that are going to do well i think exponential has got a really interesting model if they can optimize the average unit volumes for some of these smaller brands that they picked up and then we're big believers in, in planet we're big believers in this hblp 2.0 and you will not see me pounding the table on any 300 pound connected fitness, you know, elliptical that also comes with a treadmill in the back and has a, a California closet add on when you're done with it, you can hang shit on. I'm dying. Pete, you've been involved in so many different raises and sales. What accomplishment are you most proud of? Like what deal or, or project do you look back on and say like, wow, that was amazing. I'm so glad I was a part of that. So about four years ago, a buddy of mine, Brett Keith from business school, called me up on a Friday and he said, I need you to meet me at Randall's Island at 8 a.m. Bring knee pads. We're going to train like a firefighter for the day with the FDNY. So I went to Paragon Sports. I bought the the cheapest pair of knee uh, pads. And uh, it was in, I think, October, November. It was really cold. And uh, we go there with his YPO group. And it was 40 people. And you basically like a, a pledge or probate in the FDY. And you go through and you hold the hose with your with your uh with your mates and you realize that like if there aren't two people behind me, like there's no way I can control the, the, the hose. So everybody matters. They say there's a uh, two kids up in this building and they put they black out your uh mask and it's smoky and they go run up there, go get these kids. And you come down with no kids because you didn't have a strategy. You didn't have a plan. We didn't know how we were going to communicate. You go into like a terrorist simulation in a subway. You got some bodies out and then you walk back to the, uh, to the training facility. I'm like, shit, like we're missing one of our guys, you know? So like, all right, I got to account for everyone. So make a long story short, at the end of this eight hour exercise, that was very humbling. That gave me a lot more appreciation for what a firefighter does and understanding, you know, how you need to really communicate with your team at all times in, in different circumstances. The guy there, uh, Chief Regan, said to me, hey, uh, I heard you work in the fitness industry. You know, we need fitness equipment. I'm like, all right, bro, send me a list. You know, I thought I was going to send me a list of like a dozen Stairmasters. And then Gandalin and I would go and make some calls to Crunch and New York sports clubs and, you know, push fitness and say, I need to, you know, donate 12 Stairmasters. And then on that too, they sent over an Excel file that had 614 pieces of fitness equipment sorted by stations, sorted by priorities, sorted by where they were going to have it. And uh, we kind of jumped into action and created the Halo FDNY Fitness Equipment Fund. And as of six months ago, we had about a million dollars worth of equipment that's been donated into every fire station 
and there's a constant flow now of used equipment or refurbed equipment that's going into every fire station in the uh, 242 fire stations. So I'd say that's my biggest accomplishment to date. I got honored to be a FDY honorary battalion chief. And when I got that award, they said, man, you've like changed our lives. I'm like, I was just doing you a favor, you know, like you're helping save strangers, you know, in emergency situations, basically on demand, right? You're like a emergency on demand association. I'm like, ask people what you, what you need, strangers, what you need, we'll get it for you. Right. So that's probably the biggest thing that Dave and I have done in the last four years and give to the community that's around you, you know, operate with kindness, all this stuff on the finance side, like, yeah, that's great. You built another health club. Awesome. You created some jobs. Awesome. Um, you made a certain amount of money. That's great. You can talk about it or you can invest it, get some job security, family security. But at the end of the day, like just do good things. So that's my biggest accomplishment to date. All these deals. I used to have like closing dinners and like a celebration and a tombstone. Quite frankly, now I'm just relieved that the deal got done. And then I say to the owner, I'm like, hey, do me a favor. When we're done with this deal and you count your your money, donate some equipment to the FDNY. Done. I love it. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Pete. If somebody wants to connect with you, they want to learn more about working with Integrity Square, they want to tune into the podcast, how can they do that? Yeah. So the first thing we do, you know, definitely go to halotalks.com, short by the uh, different categories there. You'll definitely learn something from each podcast. I do. And then Halo Academy, which is our two, two week, five night boot camp. You know, we've got 150 executives that have gone through that and uh, just gives you a chance to really understand how a lot of these businesses work. And uh, you can reach Dave Ganelin, D Ganelin at integritysq.com, Pete at integritysq.com. And uh, your yeah, book, Pete, Row is accessible. But don't forget your book. Thank you, David. So I wrote a book <laughs> during COVID. Uh, it's called Time to Win Again. If you want to like you slap a JPEG up, you know, somewhere on the, the show notes. But it's 52 takeaways from team sports to ensure your business success. It's kind of like good to great meets where's Waldo. And we've got caricatures through our master artist, Mark, at Cruelty Free Cartoons. And he have got all these illustrations. So you see people that you know from the industry. You'll learn little snippets. As you might realize, I got OCD, so I'm not writing a novel. Everything's basically in bullet point fashion, easily digestible. And yeah, just focus on your business and hopefully that'll help, you know, give you some, you know, takeaways to uh, optimize what you're doing. I love it. This was so fun. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks for having us on. Take care. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Vanessa Severiano. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If it brought you value, please subscribe, review, and share the Business Side of Fitness podcast. If you'd like to learn more about working with me, please click the link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.